and welcome to yet another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by a very special guest, Chris Day. Chris, how you doing? I'm doing really good. How are you doing? Great. Uh, so uh, the last time we uh, had you on, you were one of three Christians talking about hell. Indeed. It's, it's so much a more of an easy conversation today. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're talking Calvinism, folks. Um, no controversy at all there. Uh, so here's what we're going to do. Um, both Chris and I have uh, our own personal reasons to <laughs> rather be doing something else at the moment, probably resting up. But uh, and so we're gonna we're gonna skip a lot of the uh, intro that I usually do. We're gonna jump right into this conversation. I've actually been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. And initially, I was looking forward to moderating a vigorous debate between two big brains. And so uh, what we have today is one big brain and me. Uh, asking questions. So, but uh, I'm still uh, looking forward to this. I will give you a little bit of setup uh, for the audience. So, uh, m- much of the audience knows that when I was a Christian, I tried a lot of things uh, on the way out the door. One of the things that I tried uh, on was Calvinism. And I, I must say that my Christian hat is a little bit Calvinist shaped. Uh, part of what led me to Calvinism is just a uh, honest study of the Bible uh, and Calvinism seems to be, certain principles of Calvinism just seem to be more consistent with what the Bible was teaching. Now, I actually think that the Bible is in itself inconsistent. I think that it teaches Calvinism um, very clearly in some places, and other authors have different ideas, and it teaches other uh, things in other places. But I thought, on balance, Calvinism is kind of the direction the needle was leaning toward, and that became a bit of a problem for me because I abhor Calvinism. I think it's awful. And so I was in the position of thinking, well, Calvinism, this is awful, and it's the Word of God. <laughs> so, mm. um, you know, that was, a, that was a war with myself uh, that I had for uh, not an, in, con, uh, uh, con, uh, uh, an insignificant uh, amount of time. It was... Um, a little while and quite the struggle, but uh, as we all know now, I'm an atheist. Uh, however, Chris Date is not. Chris Date is, uh, in fact, uh, what I would call one of the foremost uh, experts on the subject. He's a great talker. That's not at all true, but I appreciate it. I consider him one of the foremost experts on the subject, and I have <laughs> listened to many of the foremost experts on the subject. I can tell you right now, I'd rather be talking to Chris Date uh, about this than... Uh, Pretty much any of the other options out there. Uh, Chris has a way of putting a uh, a friendly face on some hard to swallow ideas. Uh, he's he's a um, amiable guy. You can't help but like him. Uh, and if Calvinism has a chance at all, it's going to be uh, from spokespeople like Chris. And so, Chris, <laughs> welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, and uh, hopefully, I can live up to that incredibly um, uh, gracious and uh, very friendly introduction. All right. Well, let's uh, let's jump right in. Uh, I want to just start uh, by tiptoeing through the tulip. I've got um, I've got really one main observation about the tulip. But if you're going to talk about Calvinism at all, I think it's uh, important to just give a brief explainer of what the tulip is. That's a good place to start. And so if you don't know anything about 
Calvinism or, or haven't, haven't read any systematic uh, kind of Calvinism theology, uh, the, the heart of it begins with Tulip. And so, Chris, I'm just going to give the floor to you to give a brief explainer of uh, Tulip and, and what that's all about. Yeah, sure. Before I do, though, let me just say that for many of us, um, Tulip actually isn't the core. For many of us, there's something that's even more at the core, um, which has to do with uh, what what is what goes in the literature by the phrase uh, meticulous divine providence. Um, we Calvinists think the word sovereignty captures that, um, and and we think that the the Tulip acronym that we'll be discussing in a moment uh, sort of flows out from. Uh, or, or, or that's it's even not it's not even quite as foundational as this concept of God's sovereignty. So we can get to that. But but as far as Tulip goes, Tulip is an acronym that captures um, uh, what what has been what have been called the doctrines of grace. Whether uh, you know most Calvinist or non-Calvinists would say they don't see anything gracious about these, but that's certainly their prerogative. And the 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 letters of the word Tulip stand for the following. Total depravity, that's the T. Unconditional election, that's the U. Uh, limited atonement, that's the L. Irresistible grace, that's the I. And perseverance of the saints, that's the P. And I'll go through those one by one. And and, and the key, uh, the, the, the thing to be noticed about these, besides the fact that um, Calvinists believe we have some biblical evidence for um, affirming these things, the key is to note that um, these all sort of, each of these sort of logically flows to one extent or another from the one before it. So let's start with the T. So before, before yeah, you ahead. start there, I, I want to also uh, note that uh, there are uh, what's called five-point Calvinists and four-point Cal- Calvinists, uh, and they're talking about the different points of the tulip. For the four-point Calvinists, which one do they deny? Typically L, limited atonement. Okay. Yeah. So, total depravity, and, and if you'd like to... Um, uh, interject and discuss each of these one by one we can otherwise you, you just you guide me but um, T the total depravity um, it sounds like what it's saying is that human beings are as bad as they possibly could be um, but that's not what it means what it means is that um, our sinfulness um, affects every single thing that we think or do um, so for example um, we would say that both somebody like Paul Pot, as well as somebody like the little old lady down the street who has been pretty good to people all her life, are they're both totally depraved because uh, not because uh, even though they are very different in terms of um, the the gravity of, of their sin, the number of people that they have hurt and so forth. Um, so they're, they're not not you know the grandma is not as bad as the uh, as as Hitler, but. Even um, the little old lady down the street, part of her does the good things that she does for wrong reasons. Um, and an example I like to give is is um, uh, 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 how, how one uh, giving to giving to charitable organizations. Um, there's certainly a philanthropic element to anybody that gives to charitable – well, maybe not anybody, but lots of people who give to uh, charitable organizations are doing it f- largely out of philanthropic philanthropic reasons. Uh, yeah, philanthropic. But, um, or f- but 
for many of them, I would argue, if not the majority of them, there's also a part of them that is thinking this is this is a way to be able to get a reduction on my taxes. You know, or this is a way to make me look good in the eyes of other people, or this is a way to bring be- uh, 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 prestige to this particular um, uh, thing that I do because I'm, I'll also be known as somebody who gives to charitable organizations or whatever. So it's this concept that there's nothing that we do with pure motives. Everything that we do is to one extent or another for um, uh, selfish reasons, uh, for, uh, and and those aren't always immediately apparent. But those of us who affirm total depravity think that um, if you dig, uh, if you dig enough, you'll you'll see that there is this sinful element to everything that we we think or do. Do you want me to move on to the you, or do you want to talk about that one first? Um, yeah. So um, total de- depravity. This was this is one that I had had trouble with initially when I started mm. uh, studying because the question. Uh, would come up to me, well, if everyone's totally depraved, how could anyone be saved? I mean, this is when I was first, of course, getting getting started with um, learning about Calvinism and uh, kind of before I got to the whole um, unconditional election part, which we're going to get to uh, next. But, it, um, you know, I've, ar- I've uh, argued with uh, people. I've had uh, several discussions with Dale, uh, in fact, about this. And I think that what he would... Uh, say is something like prevenial grace. Prevenient. Uh, Prevenient grace, I'm sorry about that. That's right. Um, And so my understanding of the prevenient grace, if you understand the question, the question is, if you're totally depraved, how would anyone ever have the impetus to even seek God? Um, Hmm. You know, we're, we're just all lost at that point. Um, and so one of the answers is prevenient grace, which is to say that God gives uh, everyone a certain amount of grace, uh, kind of a starter kit, an, enough gas in their car so that they can get to the point of seeking God. Uh, how, how would you uh, describe prevenient grace? Yeah, the word prevenient uh, just means that it comes before, if I remember correctly, and you're absolutely right. What a lot of people don't know is that historically, Calvinists and that group of non-Calvinists called Arminians have historically agreed on the T. The only difference, or or the major difference when it comes to the T between Calvinists and um, those non-Calvinists called Arminians, is that... Arminians say that God overcomes this total depravity for every person by issuing this sort of prevenient grace that gives them sort of a, a tabula rasa, a clean slate. It, 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 it frees them emotionally, psychologically, spiritually to choose either to accept Christ or to not accept Christ or, or to, to be saved or not be saved, whatever that looks like. Yeah, and uh, for me, the problem with prevenient grace um it's, I guess it's philosophical um, as well as theological, I guess, as a matter of fairness. Uh, if prevenient grace, then everyone ought to get the same amount of prevenient grace. Uh, and so it, it raises a, a, a sticky problem for me, which is why would some people seek God and not others? In other words, why was that grace enough for some and not others if we were all totally depraved? Um, and the type of answer I get from that is, well, you know, some people are more affected by sin than others. And so, 
Um, God gives everyone the same amount, and that amount's good for some people, not for others. And that just seems um, in itself um, remarkably unfair. I don't know if you've come across that type of argument or not, but this is definitely one of the discussions if, that that will take place between, uh, you know, if you're studying Calvinism versus Arminianism. Yeah, no, I mean, I think there's an element of truth to what you're saying. I, I'm not sure that I um, necessarily share the, the fairness intuition, but what I will say is, look, if, uh, well, I would, I'll say two things. Firstly, um, it certainly doesn't seem as if, um, as if God is showing everybody an equal amount of prevenient grace or equally freeing everybody to accept the gospel um i mean just one challenge to that concept is is the con is the reality that there are there have been through history and there continue to be to this day people that have never even heard of the gospel or have never even heard of jewish judeo-christian monotheism and who are um uh pagans that uh you know um will never will never even have a chance to be saved now uh, certain non-calvinists will will um, have their own interpretations of what happens to such people but the point is it certainly doesn't seem as if God is showing everybody the same this the same equal distribution of of prevenient grace or anything the other thing that I'll say that I I think what you're saying um, begins to highlight is that there's a there's an opportunity here uh, not a guarantee but an opportunity here for those who hold to this concept of prevenient grace to um, to, to be to become very prideful about it um, you see uh, f- let me defend my non-calvinist uh, brothers and sisters in Christ for a moment and say that I think Calvinists sometimes um, make an inaccurate and unfair um, charge which is that if you think that you in any way are responsible for for the choice to be saved or not then you're somehow contributing works to your salvation and it becomes it it becomes something you can rightfully boast about but i don't think that's true um if i if if a doctor comes to my door and knocks on it and says everybody in the world we've discovered is infected with some sort of fatal disease and in if you don't accept this um this cure from the shot that i've got um then everybody everybody who doesn't take the shot is going to die and so we're, we're going from house to house and distributing them or whatever if you accept that shot and are saved you're not performing any sort of boastworthy work you're just simply accepting the the shot the the doctor the, the the scientists who came up with the cure whatever they're the ones that are that are responsible however where i do think calvinists are onto something and what i think you're what you just described sort of um starts to highlight is that if you talk to any two people, or if you look at any two people that have presented, that have been presented with the gospel, um, and and every everything is identical except for this one thing, one person accepts the gospel and the other doesn't. So they're presented the same gospel by the same people in the same way. They're they're they have similar lives, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The one difference is one accepts Christ and the other doesn't. The the difference between these two people has got to reside in. Or be grounded in uh, the these two people themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one who accepts the gospel must b- have been smarter or wiser or more humble or more spiritually sensitive or, as you put it, not as impacted by sin, etc. And so, even though it's not a logical grounds for boasting, it nevertheless um, means that I 
am in some way better because I accepted the gospel than somebody who doesn't. And and that's not a position I'm, I'm I I can comfortably comfortably embrace. Sure, I'm not I'm not sure how though how you could escape that because as you say, uh, the one who accepts the, the uh, treatment is smart enough to know that oh first of all they're they're aware enough to know that they need a treatment uh so not everyone uh knows that um people who smoke for instance uh, don't always know that they need to quit smoking uh you don't know that you need a treatment so you've, you've got to be smart enough for that and then you've got to be smart enough to um uh know oh yes this is a good treatment as opposed to you know say seeing a witch doctor so there there is something uh to boast it seems and uh, <laughs> Well, I think, wouldn't that depend on whether you think intelligence is grounds for boasting? Yes. I don't think it is. I don't think there's anything um, uh, justifiable in somebody with a higher IQ, like me, boasting over somebody that has a lower IQ. And I wasn't going to compare myself to you. Like (laughs) like, like me. (laughs) No, no. Just finish that thought out. (laughs) No, but, but, you know, somebody that... um, uh, just doesn't have access to the, the same kinds of resources that I have growing up and, and as an adult um, may not have as high of an IQ, um, but I don't see that as grounds for boasting. Right, but it's not, um, it's and, not so much boasting as in, nah, 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 better than you, but it is, it is a matter of God gave me the insight uh, to know to take vaccines, and, you know, I pity you poor anti-vaxxers. Um, so, it, you know, there is, there is a difference in in um, the people who have information and can process it, and the people who don't, and then you can go and say, "Well, what's that difference uh, between those people?" And you can say, "Well, it's IQ, it's it's gray matter." But who allotted the gray matter? Uh, well, that's God, uh, and so you can still say God favored me so that I could uh, have the awareness that Je- that I'm in sin and that. Uh, this this gift of Jesus will cure that, and so I have the awareness and the wherewithal to to take advantage of that. Well, I think the pushback that non-Calvinist Christians are going to have is that you might be able to say that one person's um, a higher level of intelligence than another is is because of the way that God has made that person. But um, when you get to less cerebral and more spiritual reasons why one person might choose over another, it becomes a little more difficult to say that it has something to do with the way they've been made. Um, so argue. I'm, I'm just trying to play the devil's advocate here, sure. um, or, or more accurately, the non-Calvinist's advocate. And the, the, you know, I, I I think I can imagine myself saying one person's spiritual sensitivity. Um, may be, or, or, or humility, may be a pure act of will rather than um, a, a, something that's conditioned through because of um, uh, upbringing and, 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 and education and so forth, like IQ. Now, I don't think I don't know how well that art, that objection will hold up under scrutiny because I'm not convinced that there's anything that you could consider to, to be a pure act of will unaffected by our social context and our upbringing and so forth. Um, so I don't know what that could even possibly look like, and so I, I still think that yeah, it might it may indeed fall prey to the objection that you're raising. Okay, so we're about to go to you. Uh, you is very important to me. Uh, you is the most important one in the. Tulip. Uh, in fact, I have a subheading here uh, when I was trying to f- finish my blog and didn't. Um, when it comes to Tulip, it's all about you. I thought that was <laughs> cute. Um, that is ironic, too. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I do think um, 
I think that's the case. Before we get there, though, I just wanted to put out one other solution to the problem of total depravity, which is uh, what my denomination, I think what most denominations um, do, which is to say the fall was bad, uh, but it wasn't that bad. Uh, so in other words, we, um, we all still maintained some bit of the good that God created us with. And so uh, God does not need to give us some extra measure of prevenient grace. Uh, even after the fall, we have enough within us if we, if we pushed ourselves to the limit to find God. So that's, um, that's kind of the other way to, to deal with that. I understand that that, um, that doesn't work for Calvinism. So let's go to the you and find out why. You, um, unconditional... Um, Election. Election, yes, the, the UE, um, not the EU. The unconditional election. Uh, tell me about unconditional election, and would you say that it's synonymous with uh, predestination? It is synonymous with predestination. Um, well, I mean, in, in practice anyway, strictly speaking, it might not, because theoretically, God could predestine one person to be saved and another person not to be saved um, for uh, because of things they do, mm. uh, or because of things he knows that they would do, or, you know, he could, he could predestine them to do one thing because of some other thing that they do unpredestined to do so. So, uh, but at least in terms of what people actually believe, yes, it's synonymous with predestination because predestination is in practice synonymous with um, the idea that, and, and here's what unconditional election is, that the um, uh, and, and, and actually before I say what I'm about to say let me just preface this by saying this is why I don't like the phrase quite so much um, it, it the, the, the phrase sounds like what it means is God chooses from among the body of humankind the mass of humankind chooses who is going to accept the saving gospel um, and and who will not accept the saving gospel um, and the tr- the basis of God's choice has nothing at all to do with um, anything that those people do or anything that those people are in terms of character nature whatever um, so you know one common, non-Calvinist notion is that, yeah, the Bible teaches some sort of predestination, but what God predestines people to, the the predestining unto salvation that God does is based on what he foreknows people are going to do in such and such circumstances. Um, So, you can see how this is a concept of predestination, uh, allegedly by a non-Calvinist, that is conditioned on the the person that's being chosen or not, whereas in unconditional election we would say that it has nothing to do with God might with what God might foreknow a person would do under such circumstances or based on anything a person has done. It's all in in the inscrutable will of God why He will choose one person over another to be saved. Um, now the reason why I don't like uh, the the phraseology so much is because when you talk about God choosing some people to be saved and other people not to be the 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 thing the picture that that evokes is that um, you've got sort of ten options. God sort of has a number of options in front of him, uh, and all things being equal, he then, for reasons that are inscrutable to us, chooses from among those ten, those people who's going to be saved and who's not. But I don't think that's quite accurate. Um, the 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 choice is not at the moment of. Uh, or it, it doesn't 
follow God's creation of humankind. Um, it's not choosing a, a certain number of golf golf balls from a bucket of golf balls. Um, it, it goes further. It goes deeper than that. It's it's um, the very creation itself. Um, uh, God chooses to create. A people who are going to choose to be saved, uh, and he chooses to create a body of people that will not. Um, so, a better analogy than picking golf balls from a from a bucket of golf balls would be something like: there's this one giant lump of clay, and God breaks off a piece of that clay and makes a hammer from it and another piece of clay and makes a um, uh, cup out of it. Um, God didn't choose to take one one, um, he didn't choose to take one thing and make it into something and take another thing and make it into something else. Rather, he created two different things from the raw material that is the clay in this analogy. Um, You know, you, you wouldn't say that God chose one clay item and made it into a hammer and then another clay item and made it into a, whatever the other thing was that I said, it, 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 the design goes more deeply than that, if that makes sense. So, but yeah, go ahead. Well, I ramble. So, no, 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 that, that's, that's fine. Um, I just want to clarify because I have a little bit of confusion on this point. Um, so there, there are uh, two different, um, Ideas here: the unconditional election and the conditional election. I, uh, so I'm still not entirely sure where you are because you don't like the phrasing of unconditional election. So if you'll allow me, let me let me just read uh, a quick paragraph here, uh, and this is from uh, a site called Learn Religion, and uh, so they make a, a pretty clear statement of what they think unconditional election is. I, I hmm. want to get your reaction to it. Uh, The Calvinist view says God chooses who will be saved because people are dead in their sins. They are unable to initiate a response to God. In uh, eternity past, God elected certain people to be saved. The saved people are called the elect. God picks them based not on their personal character or merit, but out of his kindness and sovereignty. It also means that election for salvation is not based on God's foreknowledge of who will come to faith in the future. Since some are chosen for salvation, others are not. Uh, Those not chosen are the damned, destined for uh, eternity in hell. Is that uh, what, besides the eternity in hell part, which I know (laughs) you don't agree, um, is, is that in accurate or inaccurate uh, expression of unconditional election? I I think it's for the most part accurate, and I think that um, a a lot of what you just read is is a more articulate way of saying what I tried to say a moment ago. The thing that that trips me up, I'm very much on the side of unconditional election. I'm just saying the phraseology troubles me, because notice the way that even what you read puts it. Because everybody is equally totally depraved, um, therefore God picks what you just read it says picks um a a a subset of humanity and random uh, choice almost or it or an inscrutable choice from from the beginning he makes which is to me in indistinguishable from a random choice so let's say there are 10 billion humans uh in all of world history and he picks 1 billion of them and he knows exactly who they are uh and what they're going to be and he chooses them and he chooses to make them and that's his you know that's all on him 
Well, so putting aside the question of whether inscrutability and randomness are, are virtually synonymous, I think that um, the, uh, the, 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 the problem with that way of thinking about it is, again, it sounds as if there's a pre-existing um, uh, number of items that are, that are um, relevantly equivalent, uh, namely they're equally totally, or they're, they're all totally depraved, right. and God picks uh, from among that um, number of items some subset thereof. But that's not, but that isn't an accurate way. It's not like, it's not like after humankind becomes totally depraved, then, and, and after God has the knowledge that he's going to create all these different people, then he chooses from among those people that he has decided to create to become, uh, uh, to, to become saved. That's, right. I don't think that's quite accurate. Right. No, more, he, he makes, he has a plan for saving uh, for for making people that he plans to save the elect, in other words, is not an afterthought. Uh, yeah. After the thing has been created, the elect is the creation, uh, along with other other people that are not the elect. Yeah, again, it's 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 more. It's not the same as picking golf individual golf balls out of a larger bucket of golf balls. It's more analogous to tearing a piece of clay off of a big lump, tearing two pieces of clay off a big lump, and and crafting something from each of them. The 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 election happens it, from the very creation. The, the 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 one is created for a particular reason, and the other for a particular reason or reasons. Right. So, uh, but that said, all. If if not for that election, all would be damned. There's no, there would be no way for anyone to be saved had God not created the elect. Well, had not had God not created the elect, it depends on what you what you mean by that. It do, he doesn't create the elect, but he does create humankind. Then yeah, there'd be no reason to say it'd be saved, provided that in this hypothetical scenario you're describing, he chooses to make um, uh, to humanity and and, for, and and chooses to have history unfold the way that he has chosen it to unfold in terms of the fall and original sin and so forth. Yes, in this hypothetical situation, his choice not to create the elect would mean nobody would be saved. Um, but uh, again, these these intentions, the, this design is from the moment of creation itself. It's it, if God didn't choose to create the elect, then there would those people who are the elect wouldn't even exist in the first place, unless He chose to make them non-elect. It's not, in other words, it's not just merely that God doesn't choose to make the elect. It would be that God chooses to make those who would have otherwise been uh, elect not elect. It's the design, the, the, this choice and this design, like I said, it goes back to the very root of uh, creation, the, the very purpose for which um, people are created is um, is part of this. It, it's, it's Again, it's, it's not the same as saying you've got a pre-existing set from which God is choosing a subset. It's right. not like that. So uh, we're going to come back to that because I've got a couple of questions about that. Sure, but I, let's, 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 breeze through, let's breeze through the other three. I won't even interrupt you because okay. I, do, I don't <laughs> – here's my only commentary on them. I don't find them interesting. If you, if you accept the elect – and this is what I guess kind of confuses me about the four um, – point uh calvinist uh irresistible grace uh, it's it's just an obvious follow-on all of these things are, are kind of um tautologies at at this point i mean um it, once you accept the you i don't see how 
any of these other three don't follow. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm in the same boat. Uh, I, I also I share the same intuition, um, uh, but. I think that the the so-called four pointers who are um, uh, pushing back on this L that I'm going to mention in a second, I think they're doing so because uh, there are um, statements in scripture that sound, at least on the surface, as if they are in conflict with the L. Now, I don't think they are, um, but we can get to that. Uh, but so I, I do think they're trying to be um, faithful to what they understand scripture to be teaching. But I think you're right. I think that the, uh, the L, the I, and the P all pretty f- follow logically from the previous ones and that's kind of what i said when i introduced these right they flow yes. logically from one from the other okay so breezing through them limited atonement is it sounds it doesn't mean limited in the sense of um quality or uh, scope or, or quality or, or power or anything like that value it's not limited in those senses um it, a better word might be particular the the atonement the atoning work of christ by which um uh, people who accept his gospel are saved, that atoning work was not done for all humankind, according to those of us that affirm the L. It was done for that subset of humanity that were created to, you know, with, with part of their design being to accept the saving gospel. Um, so it's limited in scope, not in power or value. Right. And that, the I, that to me is a different distinction without a difference, ultimately, because if once you acknowledge that, uh, only a limited number of people are going to be saved. <laughs> it does not matter whether you say, uh, well, the atonement was for everybody, but you know, most people didn't accept it. That's just, we're just talking semantics at that point. In my opinion, um, th- there are only so many that will be atoned. Um, so I think there are plenty of ways to read it where it's consistent with your, what you what once again, once you accept, uh, unlimited, uh, uh, un, um, Unconditional election. Unconditional election. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, it, it doesn't really matter what you think about limited versus unlimited atonement unless you're going to just be inconsistent with what you just said. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll leave that to my non-Calvinist brothers and sisters to defend or, or my four-point fellow <laughs> – my, my four-point Calvinist brothers and sisters in Christ to defend. Um, but that's the L. So the U is irresistible grace. And here again, this is the problem with terminology. It suggests that – um, we are uh, trying to resist the grace of God, um, the elect, that is, but that we're incapable of finally doing so, that somehow we eventually cave, and that caving into that is is inevitable. It's ir- it can't be finally resisted. But that's not what it's saying. A better way to put it, would uh, to put the kind of concept of irresistible grace, is simply that those whom God has um, created to be the elect will... Um, uh, respond favorably to the grace of God um, perfectly. That 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 will happen to a person. Um, there is. It's not as if God elects uh, the elect and they might respond savingly to the gospel. Um, no, they will um, by definition uh, and and by God's sovereign decree. So that's irresistible grace. It just means that God's choice will come to, uh, will be will come to be manifest in the elect um, perfectly. And then uh, the P is perseverance of the saints. And here again, it's a little bit um, misleading in as much as it's not anything about the elect that ca- that 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 makes them persevere. 
revere in faith. That's what the phrase is referring to. The fact that we we would say that anybody another a, a very sort of crude way of putting it would be um, once saved, always saved. Right. Uh, a little less a little less crude would be um, eternal security. It's the idea that if you are one of God's elect, then you then because the I means that you will you will be saved period um the p it takes it to the next step which is that you won't ever um cease to be saved um up until the moment you die so you'll remain a faithful believer for the rest of your life uh, or you might go through ups and downs you might go through periods where you question your beliefs or whatever but when you by the time your time in this life is over you you will have um continued to accept the gospel right. um which seems to follow the, because you're a, you're the elect and so if you at some point become unsaved, then God was wrong about calling you the elect. Well, and again, because the the elect aren't a people called the elect in the sense of God picks a subset of humanity. No, it's it's that that's how they're, they're the very way they're created, the very thing they're created to be. Um, and and it wouldn't make any sense for God to create you um, to be that uh, body of people and, um, and and be irresistibly saved and then to somehow fall away. I agree with you. It, it does follow logically. But the reason why perseverance of the saints is a phrase that in and of itself is a little misleading is because the the the, the persevering really doesn't have anything again to do with the elect themselves. Right. It's not it's so much God's the saints. faithfulness, not their not correct not their faithfulness. Correct. Yeah. So, so that's so that's so that's tulip. But but let me just repeat what I said at the beginning. There there's an even more underlying and foundational issue that at some point we may want to discuss, which is the what we Calvinists mean when we talk about the sovereignty of God. Oh, don't don't. Um, well, that's that's the next point. That's fine. Um, we can get there. Yeah. yeah. So I, I've I've just got. Um, Three questions about the unconditional grace, though, and I'll just ask them all at once, and uh, you can answer any or all of them that you like. Um, because to me, that's that really is what we're talking about. We're talking about, uh, you know, loosely predestination. <laughs> that's that's the deal. So let's just let's just accept uh, all of that. And I do believe that you know there are parts of the Bible that seem to uh, be promoting this. So even now. Uh, when I when I read the Bible, I, I see that. Uh, so uh, one of the problems is that uh, since no one can uh, change their salvation status, what's the point uh, of the drama of life on earth? Uh, two, since uh, God elected some to be saved, why bother creating the rest uh, with souls? I mean, why? What's what's the point of that? Uh, problem three: If God uh, picked out a Few elect. I know that this this language is is um, not good based on what we just talked about. Is how I wrote the question. Uh, if God picked out a few elect, uh, how is He not a, a respecter of persons? Uh, that is to say, having some as uh, predestined to be saved and some as not predestined to be saved. In other words, this whole idea of predestination in the elect just seems unfair, no matter how you look at it. How do you how do you answer that? Yeah. Well, let me answer that last question first, because I think it's the easiest uh, to answer. When, if you look at what the Bible means in context when it says that God is not a respecter of persons, what it means is entirely consistent. In fact, it's the driving motivator behind the unconditional nature of unconditional election. Um, what it means when the Bible says God is not a respecter of persons, it means that he doesn't show favoritism to any particular kind of person. He doesn't, he, he doesn't um, favor the rich. He doesn't favor the poor. 
poor. He doesn't favor the smart. He doesn't favor the less intelligent, et cetera, et cetera. He, he's not somebody that shows favoritism based on um, your your upbringing, your class, your um, uh, you know your socio cultural status or anything like this. Um, and 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 none of that's true under um, under unconditional election. God, the very fact that it's unconditional is because he's not a respecter of persons. He's not choosing the the, uh, the smartest people to be the saved. He's also not choosing the dumbest people to be the saved. Um, the, the the elect represent a wide swath of all of these various categories, um, and the reason why they're, they're elect has absolutely nothing to do with any of these possible categories. So, no, he's not a respecter of persons um, in the way that the Bible uses that language. Um, now, if, if you're challenge or if your if your objection is to the notion that God might choose to create two groups of people, one who he has created to receive his saving favor and another people who don't who he's decided um, in creating them will not accept his saving favor. Um, you can certainly object on that basis, but that's just going back to um, your your second objection. It's it's not it has nothing to do with him being a respecter of persons. Sure. Well, so, in so to that second wanna, objection, since God elected some to be saved, why bother creating the rest of us with souls? Um, what's what's the point? Uh, why not just create the elect and uh, and have at it? Why the rest of the non-player characters? That's what that's what it feels like. Well, that's fine. I I, I, under, I understand that, although I can't relate to it because when I when I read um, a really great uh, fiction novel, um, I don't think to myself, you know, in the end, uh, the, the the protagonists win or whatever, and that was by the author's design. The protagonist in the story couldn't have done anything differently. So, what's the point with by, in creating all the antagonists in the story? I, I can't relate to thinking that way. But that's ultimately what your uh, what this what this objection um, boils down to here. Um, if 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 the objection is why if if the choice um, of who's going to be saved and who will not boils down to the choice of God, if if that somehow challenges the notion you know or, or raises this challenge, why create all the people that are that he's chosen aren't going to be saved? That's analogous to saying why does the author write the stories of the antagonists into their fiction, and. Um, again, the, the, the choice or the reasons for that have to do with um, what the author is trying to accomplish. The antagonists in the story serve a purpose. Um, and those purposes aren't always antagonistic, mind you. Um, in, in a very good uh, fiction novel, you're going to have antagonists with whom the reader can largely relate. Um, and, and to whom the reader is largely going to be sympathetic. In many cases, um, the antagonist is going to play a very meaningful role in, um, in in the story that unfolds and have a very meaningful impact on the protagonists in the story and so forth. So I just can't object. I can't relate to the very uh, to the very objection because it's an objection that seems to make no sense to something analogous, which is the the, the relationship between an author and a story. Well, think um, think more like uh, fantasy board games. Think Dungeons and Dragons, um, mm. that sort of thing. You've got um, the players, um, and they're all playing fictional characters, mind you, but you've got the actual players around the board uh, and their characters, and then you've got the 
NPCs or non non player characters, uh, which are it's just kind of the the fictional surroundings, <laughs> uh, you know, the the people that they meet as you narrate through uh, the world. But generally, you've got you know three or four actual players and the rest NPCs. Now, we, the analogy would be that the actual players are the ones with souls. And the NPCs are just empty cardboard cutouts to to help move the story along. But it seems like God created NPCs with souls, uh, actual people that can suffer, but who actually don't have any part in the drama except to be, uh, you know, part of the story for the real people that matter. Yes, yeah, I think that actually um, that's an extremely deficient analogy for what we've got in um, the the biblical worldview. Um, in fact, the the very way that you've uh, painted this picture, and as somebody that played a lot of D anD D when he was a um, uh, an adolescent, this is something I can very much relate to. Uh, I, I love playing role playing games. Um, the the the, the non player characters are indeed as what you said. They are nothing but um, uh, tools to drive the story but if that was how god created human beings some of them are mere mere tools um that would be a pretty piss poor creation i mean there'd be no worth no value um to those uh, you know no, no no real worth or value as he said they're just cut cardboard um cutouts but in the biblical worldview or at least in, you know in the, in the calvinist take on the biblical worldview even the non-elect have incredible worth and value. They're, they they bear the very image of God. They are um, they have innate worth. They have there's an innate dignity to their lives by virtue of being bearers bearers of the divine image. Um, so it's it's precisely in a biblical worldview that the non elect do have value and meaning and purpose because they aren't just cardboard cutouts. My wife and I were just talking about this last night. That um, you know there, there's. There, there's a long-standing question amongst people who believe in eternal torment, which is, um, how could we possibly enjoy our blissful eternity knowing that our unbelieving loved ones are writhing in hell in agony? Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, one of the uh, solutions to that that some people have suggested is that God wipes the memories uh, of the elect clean of all of their interactions with and the knowledge of their um, the, the people that they had known in life that that are believers and i couldn't get on board with that no i couldn't and here's why because um integral to who we are is the interactions and experiences that we've had with countless others and if you if you wipe the memories of those things you're not the the, you're in you become an entirely different person and so this is um and so my wife and i were just talking last night about how um there are uh countless people in our lives who we believe if they remain unbelievers um will ultimately uh cease to live and uh never live again on the day of judgment um and yet they're, um, depending upon the, the, the kind of life that they've lived, they're going to have an everlasting positive impact because they will have positively shaped the, um, uh, the, the, the characters of untold numbers of people. I mean, it, it's a very common thing to say, mm-hmm. this, this person lives on in us. 
And that's a very meaningful statement, I think. And it's one of the ways in which I think um, the lost, even though they are the non-elect, um, they nevertheless do have profound meaning and purpose in their lives. I'll give you this, Chris. That's the um, that's the most accessible version of that, of that uh, doctrine that that I've heard. I um, I don't I don't buy it, but I think it's a I think it's a better answer uh, than the ones I've heard uh, so far. So uh, yeah, I'm curious to I'm curious to see how um, some of the Calvinist folks in the audience might think about that because we yeah. don't we just don't have this perspective uh, on the show too often. I think that just as progressive Christianity is an unfamiliar brand of Christianity to a lot of uh, mainline Christians, I think that Calvinism is very unfamiliar. Uh, to a lot of people too, uh, and so that's a that's a good explanation uh, that you gave. Uh, good in that it's different for me, and I'm I'm really curious as to how uh, others digest that. But let's let's get into what is even more challenging, I think, than predestination. I think that's pretty challenging. But um, what is the term you use? It's a fancy term that I don't have written. Down. Meticulous providence. Meticulous providence. Can I can I try to summarize that and then yeah. you can then you can fix it? Um, my my uh, layman's summary of meticulous providence is God has a plan and it's sovereign uh, and there's nothing you can do to um, change it. His his plan is going to work uh, because he's God and there's that's that's what it is. That's my summary. Uh, okay, I, I think I would um, take a couple of issues with it. Um, one, it, um, uh, gosh, my my own train of thought has been derailed. Um, my what, one issue I have with it is that it's it's more than just a plan um, that people can thwart or something like that. Um, and and number two, it it it's not. God could have, God could have a plan that He somehow sovereignly works out um, without meticulous providence being true. Um, it, it could be that He works. He, he he's a master chess player is how a lot of non Calvinists will play uh, will say it or he's like a master judo a judo master in mm-hmm. that he can or or even better than judo would be aikido for people who don't know or people who do know what aikido is they'll the the uh, they'll get this aikido is a um, a martial art that involves redirecting your opponent's um, <clears throat> strikes and using their own momentum to uh, work against them mm-hmm. and um, somebody who doesn't affirm meticulous providence could say that's what God does. He he he's masterful at taking what people do of their own free choice and working what he wants to accomplish um, through them. But that's not uh, what we're talking about when we're talking about meticulous providence. Um, so I'll just put it. I'll just say it. What meticulous providence is is that um, every single thing that takes place in time was. Um, uh, was ordained by God to take place exactly as it took place. There's no, there's nothing that happens in time that God didn't foreordain to happen exactly as what it does. What do you mean by ordain? I, I, I mean, uh, decree uh, in, in, in a, um, in a sovereign way, a, a way that guarantees that it's going to happen. Let's okay. put it that way. So it's something God, that he wanted to happen. Well, want is is a bit of a loaded term. It is. Um, 
So, for example, and I'll go back to the author and story analogy, the author foreordains everything that happens in the story by virtue of being of crafting the story. Um, but as any author will tell you, the, uh, the, the author very often does not get joy or pleasure out of the kinds of suffering that his or her protagonists go through in the story. Um, so want is a bit of a loaded term here. Um, it's certainly true that he wants, the author wants it in a certain sense of the word want. It, it, it's, it's, a, um, it's a necessary in the author's perspective, um, from the author's perspective, it's a necessary part of the story. That doesn't mean, however, that you know. It doesn't mean that the, that that the author takes pleasure in um, what's happening. It's just that the author is convicted that it's an important part so of the taking, story. So taking the pleasure uh, uh, out that that point aside, would you say that ordained uh, carries the uh, meaning that God actively made it happen, as opposed to God passively allowed it to happen? But yes, to a certain extent, except that even now you're using language, you know, actively made it happen. That sounds as if God is um, moving pieces around in time um, and, and that every every action is, is just an illusion, that ultimately it's it's God causing it. Like um, a, a domino in a line of dominoes that is knocked over isn't making any choice to fall over. It's just the, the mechanistic cause and effect. of. Well, this, um, this is why I'm trying to get clarity on ordained, because that's often a slippery word. Word that uh, it, when when in conversation, people will use it to mean one thing one moment and another thing the next moment. And so you use the analogy uh, of an author writing a book. Um, well, that's that's the author making things happen. <laughs> well, actually, no, it's not. It's it's not in the way that I'm talking about causation, right? Um, if, if you when when um, when uh, uh, when Frodo. Um, at the last moment on on Mount um, Doom or, or whatever it is, I forget the name of uh, the, the mountain there. When he, when Frodo um, refuses to toss the ring into the fire in in, in the mountain, um, the author isn't uh, J.R.R. Tolkien isn't um, isn't interacting somehow with Frodo to make Frodo do this thing. It's not as if he's uh, 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 pulling the strings of Frodo's mind, right? Frodo, there's a, a host of reasons that contribute to Frodo's choice in the story. Um, the, the, the effect that the ring has on him, um, the, the attraction of, of, of having the power of being able to turn invisible and so forth. There's a co host of complex reasons why Frodo does what Frodo does. And God is, uh, J.R.R. Tolkien isn't acting in time to make that happen. So yes, there, there is a relationship between the author of a story and the, and the takings place in the story such that what the author has ordained to happen or written to happen does perfectly happen and not, there's nothing beyond there's nothing outside of uh, uh, the ability of the author to write what's going to happen but it's not causation in the ordinary way that we use the, the language of causation that's my only point okay i don't i don't i don't fully follow it but i will i will Let's let's progress the definition uh, sure. further. But I I would put a pin there and say that uh, that that doesn't I, I don't follow that because I I write words uh, a lot and uh, some of them are fiction. They're usually bad. But even my bad fiction, uh, not not a single one of my characters has ever acted in a way that I didn't make them act. <laughs> so. Um, I am well, I am fully causal of everything my characters do. 
No, I, I, I mean, I, I would agree that you are perfectly um, uh, willing what happens uh, in the sense that what happens is perfectly what you've willed to happen. I wouldn't agree that you're causing anything. Even You can't even say that putting the pen to paper is the causation because the story exists in your mind before you put pen to paper. And and when the story um, unfolds in, in, in the storyline, you're not interacting with the characters in the story in any way to cause them to do what they're doing. So, so I don't think it's as simple as that, but that's fine. We can leave it there and, and keep going. Okay, let's uh, let's keep going. So, um, okay, so please, please give me those words again. The the meticulous, meticulous. Divine. So it's it's providence because God has um, willed that what takes place takes place, and it's meticulous because it's every single thing that takes place in time. It's okay. not just subsim. Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, I had to ask you uh, about this. So uh, predestination. I'm using that word. I don't know if that's the most accurate word for uh, uh, what we just talked about, but it, God. There's an idea that God predestinates uh, predestines people. Uh, or the the uh, election, but in order to for God to predestine people, He has to predestine everything. Uh, it seems He can't He can't just in a vacuum uh, predestine that there will be a Judas, for instance, without all of the trillions of events uh, that had to occur to create a Judas. And it sounds like what you are saying is that God would take you. Uh, God does take that responsibility of predestining predestining all of the events and not just the 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 people yes that's i i think absolutely true i think um people who reject the concept of meticulous providence um uh, but are but somehow try to think that god predestines some people to be saved i think are um uh, i think they're facing a real uphill battle because as you say um there's a uh, trillions it might be a bit of an overstatement but there are certainly countless unto- you know untold countless um, number of uh, events that uh, go on in our lives to contribute to every decision that we make and I don't know how um, God is going to be able to predestine anything to happen um, effect you know uh, w- without predestining everything to happen now, I'm not going to defend that um, in any sort of rigid way. I, I, I'll, I'll let non-Calvinists um, ha- or, or four point or you know some some weird hybrid of Calvinist Arminian make that argument. Um, but I'm, I share with you the intuition, intuition that um, that some is going to require all. Right. So that that of course brings us to the the moral uh, dilemma of of this once again, and I think where a lot of people push back against Calvinism. And so you can see the question coming a mile away. Uh, does, does God plan or predestine the evil uh, that people do to one another? Uh, so, for instance, if one of the elect is born via a violent rape, does that mean that God predestined the rape? Uh, my position would be that, yes, uh, provided that we understand that predestined is, it has a particular technical jargon that typically refers to the you and unconditional election. Um, but, but, but yes, does, does God preordain? Does he decree? Does he, um, uh, d- does he, uh, will for the evil to happen? And, uh, my answer is yes. And thank God that that's true because if it weren't, then, um, the w- world would be full of purposeless, mindless evil. And, um, I've had enough evil happen in my life to know that I don't know what I would do if I thought that that evil was purposeless. 
I don't I don't know how to make you say it more plain than that. I have a I have a kind of a philosophy when I'm uh, when I'm interviewing people. There's a there's a thing that uh, if I think that's what they mean, I'm going to try to get them to say it as directly as possible and move on. And you've you've said it now, and so I don't know what else to ask. Um, well, can you, I? Do you mind if I if I share a little bit of a personal story to explain uh, you, to, to give an example of the, the the conviction that I'm here describing? You you can, and it, but before you do, can you can sure. you at least understand why this idea um, garners so much pushback? Why why it's a challenge uh, for people to hear? Um. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Um, but but let me let me read the um, if you don't mind the, the first two paragraphs. Um, uh, well, I, I, no, I, I don't want to read. So you so can, uh, you can't. Uh, I'm, look, it's you have as much space as you need to to uh, to make your case because uh, honestly, I want you to try to to humanize this. I want you to change my mind. Uh, it's not going to happen, but I would love for you to. <laughs> so. <laughs> Well, okay. Here, so um, I would love for people to check out the Two Views Debate book that I have on this topic. It's really easy to find my Amazon author profile. You just go to Amazon.com slash author slash. I'll put a link in the. Um, uh, Thank you. So that so that they can just click right in it. That's fine. But but for those who don't take the time to go to your post and get it, it's just Amazon.com slash author slash Chris Date. Super easy to get to. And it's called, Does God Predetermine the Eternal Destiny of Every Single Human Being? And I'm taking the affirmative and my opponent is taking the negative. And here's how I start my opening case. And I start this way because I want to make it clear. I don't think that this is a deficiency in my view that I somehow have to defend. I I, I, I take this as a positive of my view that, that, that there's purpose in the evil in the world. World, which isn't true in other views. So here, here are just the first four paragraphs of my opening statement, and then I'll stop rambling. Um, a tiny white and blue urn sits on the bookshelf in my office. A printed sticker on the bottom reads, Cremated Remains of Baby Date. My wife Star and I added our son's given names and marker, Joshua Phillip. Star had gone in for a routine ultrasound one Friday around week 17, but the technician could not find a heartbeat. Nervous but hopeful, we returned Monday only to have our worst fears confirmed. Star had to carry Joshua's lifeless body. Star is my wife, if that's not, not clear. Mm-hmm. Star had to carry Joshua's lifeless body for another few tearful days before she could be seen for a DNC. Joshua was the second of two babies that my wife has miscarried. We lost our first on our honeymoon when we were atheists. We were devastated, not least by what we thought was the purposelessness of our loss. We still grieved when later, as Christians, we lost Joshua, but our grief was of a different character, the pain more tolerable. This was, of course, owing in part to the comfort of the Holy Spirit, to the fellowship of the family, uh, friends, and church, and to the intimacy that Star and I now enjoyed after a decade of happy marriage. But what consoled us more than more than these was our belief as Calvinists that God was in control. Indeed, that he had foreordained this tragedy as he does all events in time. It meant we could trust that our loss was not without purpose, even if we could not at the time discern it. We have since been given glimpses into the purpose of our losses, most recently when Star and a friend were on holiday in Scotland. A train from London, on a train from London to Edinburgh, they befriended a vacationing couple whom they invited on a long drive around the Highlands a few days later. Over dinner that night, she learned, my wife that is, that this woman had just had her DNC. Uh, for, for listeners who aren't familiar, DNC is basically the removal of a dead unborn child's remains from the womb. Um, she had just had her DNC the day before she and her husband 
husband flew across the Atlantic after losing their unborn baby. This natural evil that we had suffered was thus a, uh, thus enabled my wife to console this couple only days after facing the same tragedy. With her help, they found some comfort, even joy, on a vacation that may otherwise have been marked exclusively by sadness and mourning. And here's the last paragraph that I'll read and then I'll stop. We have been no less impressed by the good we have seen result from acts of moral evil. A friend recently told us he had suffered much emotional, physical, and even sexual abuse as a child. He was saved about a year ago as an adult, and in Christian counseling following his conversion, he realized that the abuse that he had experienced had prepared him for the challenges he later faced as an army ranger. Moreover, whereas his last few years as a ranger were spent teaching recruits how to overcome their instinctual fear of killing— as part of his new life in Christ, he has started a ministry helping veterans recover their humanity and find peace. So the awful evil to which he was subjected as a boy helped him later to serve his country and even thwart plans to commit acts of terror on American soil, all of which helps him now to mend broken hearts and homes. So so my point in reading of all, all of this and indeed writing all of this is just to say that um, – when when you believe that God predestines uh, to, to to misuse the technical jargon, um, but but when he, when he um, meticulously foreordains everything that takes place in time, then one can trust that there is purpose and good to come from even the most heinous of evils. Um, whereas if you do not believe that he predestines uh, everything that takes place in time, then you've got to believe that God merely permits these otherwise random and, and purposeless um, uh, evils to take place. And I know which of those two options sits better with me. So, I understand all that. <laughs> um, I do get it. And uh, unfortunately, I, th- I think you're right uh, as far as just looking at the Bible. I think that's more, I think that's more right <laughs> than, uh, than the other views. It still doesn't sit well with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I... I, in my limited human capacity, and this this is me with my Christian hat on, um, have to think that uh, God could find a better way uh, to give me character or some such than to put me through hell. Um, well, but even if, but but that doesn't. Uh, but, but that addresses a different issue, which is um, what uh, what he's uh, uh, whether or not he could accomplish what he wants to accomplish in some other way. That's a separate issue. The, 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 the issue that I'm addressing is if this isn't the way that God operates, and if there are these unforeordained um, acts of evil and and occurrences of natural evil, those there those, those evils are purposeless. I agree and, with you, which is which is the conundrum. So, the, either the evils are purposeless, or God is uh, what seems to be, by my human standard, evil for using this method to do it. Okay, yeah. I mean, I just can't share that intuition. You know, when when a uh, again going back to the author story analogy, I don't count the author evil because the author foreordains what um, evils take place uh, and, and are suffered by the protagonist in the story. Now, I've of course, some pretty evil things to my characters. I so <laughs> well, but that's the difference between that's a difference between you and God. If you're if if you're intentionally saying, oh, this character experiences all this all this torture, and you're somehow 
gleefully, you know, ooh, look at all this terrible evil I get to cause my my protagonist. Well, then, yeah, I think you are indeed evil. Um, but uh, but but that's a big difference between uh, the, the, a perfect author who nevertheless writes a story that includes evil. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so that's that's an that's an interesting idea. Uh, it's not a, a totally unique one. I've I've heard William Lane Craig, for instance, uh, express uh, very similar uh, ideas. Uh, what is what was the name of the book that you were reading from again? Uh, it, it's called "Does God Predetermine the Eternal Destiny of Every Individual Human Being?" Yeah, and it's it's, it's a two views debate book. I'm the affirmative; my opponent is the negative. So just um, just just um, make sure send me a link uh, to that, and I I was going to post this um, this recording this week, but I already have a show this week, so I wanted I want to actually put this off uh, for my listeners that I. I actually promised to do this earlier. I had mentioned the show, but I want to put this off for next week so it has its own space. And I also want time to read your book uh, so that uh, when I do uh, post uh, my blog post, I will have a little bit more um, context uh, for where you're coming from. Because when, uh, when a guest does have a book, I like to read it. I like to be able to promote it. And uh, I, this, this sounds like the sort of thing that I, I uh, wish I had read in it in advance of this show. So if you don't, oh, mind. I'm sorry. I, oh yeah, no, it's okay. I'd like if, to let you know in advance. No, no, it's all right. So if you don't mind, I would I would like um, to take the time to read uh, your book. I'm I'm one of those um, atheists that probably reads more Christian books than atheist books. Uh, well, because I spent most of my life in <laughs> in the church. More of I wish that were true of more of us Christians that we read more uh, non-Christian books <laughs> than than we do. Uh, I, I yeah. know what I know what we think. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and how am I ever going to have how, how am I going to discover the areas of my beliefs that are wrong if uh, that are that are untrue if I'm not willing to be challenged on them? So I I totally hear what you're saying. Exactly. I post I, I posted the link in the Skype chat. Hopefully that works for you. Okay, yeah, that'll be fine. So, uh before we go, I want I want to ask you one last question and touch on one more major area of Calvinism that raises a lot of questions in uh, the main mainline church. I don't know if it's offensive to keep distinguishing mainline church from Calvinism. I, um, th- uh, that's probably not quite right. But um, the ch- church where the fat middle resides is probably not <laughs> Calvinism. So um, the issue is prayer. Hmm. Uh, because... Uh, I think a lot of people are confused, myself included, on where prayer fits in uh, a pure Calvinistic um, theology like uh, like the one that you have. Uh, and when I say prayer, I mean petitionary prayer. Now, ironically, sure. um, my progressive uh, friends, uh, Thomas Ord and uh, Mark Harris, might actually have the same view of petitionary prayer as you. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just curious to check that out because they don't believe that petitionary prayer uh, makes any sense. Uh, but for obviously different reasons. When you say Thomas Ward, you mean Thomas J. Ward? Yes. Thomas Ward. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I've, I've interviewed him. I know where he's coming from. He's the author of the book, God Can't. Yes. I, um, I read that um, uh, about, uh, about a month and a half ago. Gotcha. Yeah. He's, he's part of the, uh, we, we, co-authored along with some other people a book um 
called Surviving Corona, which I will spend uh, a couple of minutes at the very end of the show um, talking about again. But yeah, uh, Thomas Sort, great guy. Um, uh, enjoyed my time with him. So tell me a little bit uh, about petitionary prayer. I know there are other forms of prayer. Um, honestly, I don't care about the other forms of prayer. I know that I know that um, other other people do, but petitionary prayer is the one where people have a, uh, are asking God for something basically, and they have an expectation that uh, what they're asking God will hear them and uh, you know provide based on their faith or you know what have you. What what say you about petitionary prayer? How does that work with Calvinism? Well, first of all, let me say, I think it actually is a bigger challenge to non-Calvinism, which may surprise you or may surprise others, but here's why I I think it's actually a bigger challenge. If God isn't um, willing everything that takes place in time to take place the way that it does, then um, most most requests that we're going to um, issue in our petitionary prayers, um, in order for them to be accomplished, are going to require a, 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 an uncountable, an innumerable, inscrutable number of what seem to be free uh, actions of, and choices of, of free agents. Mm-hmm. So, for example, um, if I am uh, hiking through the desert and I get uh, I fall into a ravine and my arm gets trapped in in the rock face like it did to the real life um, uh, person behind the movie 127 hours I think is what it's called um, he's the guy who who got trapped in a ravine and he cut his own arm off with a pocket knife so that he could escape um, <clears throat> if I'm hiking through the the, the the desert and that happens to me and I pray God please save me um, and and you know let somebody happen to be hiking by who sees me and can call somebody or whatever, you know, and get, get help. Well, think about the the number of um, the choices that have got to be made by other people in order for that to happen. The choice to drive at exactly the right time and at exactly the right rate of speed to get to wherever the parking lot is, the, 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 the trailhead, you know, that this trail begins at, and then to walk at precisely the right rate and to stop at just the right sites and not stop at just the right sites to get to me in just the right time. Um, the 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 um, if there have been um, uh, outages in the cellular network that have got to be fixed, then the people that are involved in going out and repairing the the cellular system have got to go out there and make the fixes at the right time and exact the, you know the right ratings, so on and so forth. An uncountable number of. Um, uh, what seem to be f- acts of free human agency are involved in bringing about the, the answering of any sort of prayer that, that we might have, any sort of request that we might have, um, at least under at least uh, uh, under what most of us envision when we envision receiving what we pray for, right? If I pray for um, financial security, I'm not imagining that God's going to suddenly snap his fingers and a million dollars is going to manifest in my bank account. We think that he's going to ha- somehow get us a, a, a better job than we have. Well, think about all the many choices that go into – on the part of many people that go right. into whether or not you get a job and so forth. So I would contend that the only reason that prayers could possibly make sense, petitionary prayers, that is, is if God exercises the level of providence that I've here proposed that he does. So, so then the question becomes, well, if I'm right, 
that um, petition petitionary prayer doesn't make much sense outside of this kind of meticulous providence that I've been describing, then the question still remains, does, can it make sense in mine? And I would contend that it does, and here's why. We Calvinists believe that, uh, those of us who believe in meticulous providence, believe that the means by which God accomplishes that, uh, that which he wills to take place in time um, – very uh, and, and very widely. Um, in some cases, God brings about what He wills by divine uh, invention. Or sorry, not invention, intervention. So, for example, God preordained for Moses to um, lead His people out of Egypt. Um, but how did He do so? Well, it began with a supernatural appearance in a burning bush. If, if we take that uh, biblical account to be true, as I do, um, so sometimes He brings about what He accomplishes by by divine uh, intervention. Um, you know, miraculous intervention. Uh, but in the examples that I've been giving, um, God uses the um, acts of other free agents. Now, if um, uh, if all of that's true, then it seems to me that logically, our very prayers could be the means by which God brings about um, the the things in time that He wills to take place. So God wills that I pray what I pray because God then um, uh, because that then contributes to the other things that God wills to take place. It contributes to the means by which the other things that God wills to take place take place. And although that's difficult to get my mind around, and I'll grant that, nevertheless, it seems to me. Um, plausible and logically um, uh, feasible that our prayers could serve as secondary means in this way. But again, um, I don't think that prayers can ha- uh, have any hope of being answered outside of meticulous providence, given how many of these acts of human agency are involved. Right. But with that, with that uh, explanation, then, you almost have to say, well, God ordained you to pray <laughs> oh yeah prayer in advance and so it seems a little circular um god answered the prayer that you prayed because he had you pray it well sure god um god accomplished the uh salvation of a people that he had foreordained to require salvation i mean it's the same concept yeah but it, with prayer it just seems it seems very strange um god God engineered the circumstances for you to pray for a thing that he then engineered to bring about. Why, why bother with a prayer? <laughs> well, so this is so this is another important thing. Um, I am of the conviction that prayer isn't all about um, what we're requesting from God. It's not all about God. Some of it is about us in the sense that our prayers are part of the means by which we um, become more like God in our character. Our um, we. Um, we by through prayer, uh, in part, um, and, and in part through other things as well, we become more like God in terms of what we desire to happen. Um, and for example, it's it's very often been said in at least Christian circles that if if you find yourself struggling with hatred towards somebody, then um, endeavor to make praying for that person a part of your daily routine. And what you tend to find is that your your heart starts to soften toward that person. So in a similar way, I would say that um, a in answering your your original objection, a um, it's only because God is meticulously provident that our prayers can accomplish anything in the first place because they can be the secondary means through which um, or by which God accomplishes what he wills. But B, 
the reason why but the, the the reason uh, the reason for prayer isn't only about the request but it's also about the impact making that request has on the person who's making it it's character shaping okay Chris Date, ladies and gentlemen um <laughs> that could either be a very <laughs> kind way of signing off or a very negative one. <laughs> Chris Date. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it, it's um, it's it's been uh, a delight, and I'm I'm just thinking I'm thinking back on our conversation even now as I'm as I'm trying to bring our conversation to an end. It's it's been fascinating for me. So uh, I've enjoyed it as well. We have um, we've talked about. Uh, predestination, uh, which is just a just a huge issue, huge can of worms for a lot of people. I think that you uh, did a good job in, in describing that. We talked about God's sovereignty. Uh, notice I avoided trying to say meticulous. <laughs> well, I got the meticulous right anyway. Uh, we talked about God's sovereignty, <laughs> which is, um, I think, the stickiest wicket um, for me. And I, I think that you... Uh, you had you had very interesting responses that I'm going to have to go back and and listen to and look over. Um, and this is this is usually not the case uh, when I listen to Calvinists. I can't tell you how many hours of Calvinists I've listened to over the last two weeks. <laughs> so um, you you definitely uh, have something to say about that. And I think that your view on prayer. Um, I've heard. Uh, much of that before, but I think that your presentation on all of these things uh, requires people who are on the fence about Calvinism or who have not known much about Calvinism. Uh, you have a reason to to look, and I'm not sure how much of you, Chris State, that they can find on the internet, but I kind of recommend um, looking at James White, who's in a lot of debate a lot, uh, if you want to get into the Bible, the, the just the scriptural basis of it um, and find out why I, for instance, think that um, it, it does have a strong scriptural basis for those who care about scriptural basis. I obviously do not. But when I'm wearing my Christian hat, uh, I, can't, I can't deny uh, the strength of the scriptural argument there. And so it becomes, it really does become a matter of do you uh, do you really, do you care about what the Bible says, and are you willing to bend yourself to to the implications of that? Uh, you know, can you can you um, can you justify not uh, looking further into Calvinism if it if it truly is uh, where the Bible is going? Uh, your book, uh, we uh, just so you know, I'm not the only one in my audience who uh, reads books for my guests. So <laughs> uh, we we might be able to sell two or three copies of, take your, <laughs> of your book. Uh, and so uh, by the time this comes up, and by the time uh, you guys read my blog, I will have read uh, this book. And who knows? There might even be an after show. There might be an after show. I'm just warning you in advance. Um, and uh, but I can tell you what the after show won't be until after I have had a chance to uh, listen to everything that you've said um, with more care and read your work because I want to make sure that everyone is represented well and I want to come back and maybe talk about some of the some of the things that uh, some of my preconceptions that uh, may have changed uh, over the course of this conversation. So I I just want to thank you, uh, Chris, for taking the time and. Um, 
coming to talk to our audience uh, about this. You have been uh, as gracious as I expected you to be. Um, and that was a pretty high bar. <laughs> so uh, I hope that we have you again. This season of Skeptics and Season uh, Seekers is coming to an end, but I, I, I certainly hope that I uh, have you back on season three, which starts sometime in September, goes from about football season through uh, the end of July. Well, unfortunately, when you say football season, I have no idea what you what that corresponds to in terms of dates because I don't follow football. But no, it, it's been both appearances on your show have been my pleasure and honor, I, and I really appreciate your willingness to get the book and read it and uh, before you write your after show. And the only thing I'll I'll say to sign off is just that um, you'll have to forgive me if I don't um, if I don't end up reading all of your after show. And and the reason is just because I'm I'm um, very soft-hearted and i don't always i'm not always able to take criticism well <laughs> so uh so it's, it, it can kind of ruin me emotionally so i i might i might um abstain from reading your scathing criticism afterwards uh, but 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 i i won't abstain from coming back on your show if you invite me again <laughs> excellent well I'll, I'll tell you mark Karras. he is uh he turned out to be a very gentle soul but he did the unexpected he he went right into the comment section where the animals are. <laughs> and uh, and I got to tell you, he he defeated Skeptics and Seekers. He broke Skeptics and Seekers. And here's how <laughs> he did it. He just agreed with everybody. He was so nice. He was so nice. And we just found ourselves disarmed. Mm. Uh, no one could punch him in the face. He kept turning the other cheek. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, so. that's a lot easier for me to do in a, in a phone call like this or a Skype call like this than it is in, in the comments thread. Because... Very often when we're writing comments on a comments thread, it's easy for us. People are nameless faces, faceless, you know, faceless, uh, voiceless text on on the screen. And it's a lot easier to treat each other poorly, unfortunately. It is. It is. And I, you know what, I'm I'm sometimes guilty, but I've been trying to uh, learn to be more human in the uh, comments. Uh, Some of my some of my uh, longtime followers have been disappointed uh, at my uh, at my attempt to become a little bit more uh, gentle hin- human, they they liked me when I was the hammer. <laughs> so I'm trying to hammer less and uh, listen more. And uh, it's conversations like this that really uh, that really help me do that. So thanks again, um, Chris. And I don't know exactly what's coming up next week, uh, audience, but whatever it is, it's going to be good. And uh, we'll see you then.